Welcome to this edition of Cato Connects. I'm Caleb Brown. I'm the director of multimedia here at the Cato Institute. Uh, today we're talking about science, nutrition, public policy, public choice, government incentives, and a lot of things that go into what ends up being nutritional advice offered by the government. We're talking with Dr. Terrence Keeley, who is a visiting senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. Dr. Keeley was a professor of clinical biochemistry at the University of Buckingham in the United Kingdom, where he served as vice chancellor until 2014. He graduated from medical school from the University of London, did his PhD work uh, in biochemistry at Oxford University, and also lectured in biochemistry at Cambridge University. Uh, and most relevant to this discussion today uh, is a book that uh, Dr. Keeley has written most recently. It's called Breakfast is a Dangerous Meal, uh, Why You Should Ditch Your Morning Meal for Health and Well-Being. Uh, less recently, he's author of The Economic Laws of Scientific research. Dr. Keeley, welcome. Thank you. So uh, let's start with uh, when did the government decide to first get into the business of issuing advice about what people eat? And, wh and was, that a, was that a surprising thing when that happened? Well, it's been doing it for about 100 years. And for the first 70 or so years, it didn't say anything unusual or unacceptable. It said, you know, to eat more fruit and to eat more protein. It was perfectly good advice. But in 1977, the government, uh, in the form of the Senate Committee Chairman George McGovern, suddenly changed all that and started telling people to eat less, particularly to eat less fat. And that was one level wasn't surprising because America was then going through this terrible uh, epidemic of heart attacks. Uh, around 1965, 1970, a third of all Americans who were dying were dying of heart attacks. It was a terrible and very worrying epidemic. So clearly people had to address that. But the specific advice they gave of eating less fat was, was terrible advice and actually only made the matter worse. All right. If you have questions for Dr. Terrence Keeley related to uh, nutrition and government nutrition advice, uh, you can tweet that uh, using the hashtag CatoConnects. You can also tag me at C.O. Brown. Uh, you can also ask questions via uh, Facebook Live as well if you're uh, able to plug in on our uh, Facebook page. And we'll try to get to as many of those questions as we can over the next uh, half hour or so. Uh, let's start with uh, the food plate turned food pyramid turned uh, food plate. I believe we have some of these uh, some images of the old food plate here. For health, eat some food from each group every day. Uh, what do we have? Greens, green and yellow vegetables, oranges, tomatoes, grapefruit, potatoes and other vegetables and fruits, milk and milk products, meat, poultry, bread, flour, and cereals, uh, and of course, butter and fortified margarine. And then you move on through time and we get uh, this uh, image which where, the, where bread forms the foundation of this, uh, is, this is a terrible image. This, of course, is the famous, the world-famous pyramid. And actually, you'd be better off inverting it if you actually did the exact opposite of what the government recommended uh, when it did that pyramid, you'd be healthier. So at the top of that pyramid, we have fats, oils, uh, and sweets. They say use sparingly above, uh, below that, milk, yogurt, cheese, meat, poultry, fish, dry beans, uh, below that, vegetables and fruit, and below that, forming the foundation, bread, cereal, rice, and pasta. But of course, that wasn't set in stone, and that changed as well. And we have a, there's a more recent uh, food pyramid here, my pyramid, steps to a healthier you, grains, vegetables, fruits, milk, 
uh, meat and beans. So the, the graphic may not be set in stone, but the message from the government is still set in stone. Okay. And when you looked at the last government message in 2015, it was still very much cut down on fats and eat um, carbohydrates. To be fair, they didn't tell you, the government didn't tell you to eat more sugar, but it absolutely told you to eat more carbohydrate. And yet all the knowledge that we now have is that carbohydrate remains bad for you. And the bulk of your calories should actually come from vegetable oils, you know, olive oil, avocados, uh, coconut oils. These are the, the, the fuels that seem to do least harm and most good. Okay. So and they, these are very dense calories. They're dense calories, but the point is they're not carbohydrate. They're fat. And fat is actually good for you. Uh, vegetable fats in the main of, of course not margarine, but vegetable fats, natural vegetable fats, natural vegetable oils are essentially good for you. All right. If you have questions for uh, Terence Keeley related to government nutrition advice, and we'll get to get into some of the, the economics and the incentives that uh, governments and uh, researchers and some of the, and the manufacturers and consumers face when it comes to uh, nutrition and when the government decides to give advice, why they give uh, what they give. If you have questions related uh, to this, you can ask those uh, tweeting with the hashtag Cato Connect uh, and also tag me at C.O. Brown. You can also ask questions via Facebook Live. We'll try to get to as many of those as possible again over the next half hour or so. So the government decided to uh, – it was a bit of a rush when they decided to uh, get into the business of offering – uh, nutritional guidelines. Can you walk us? You, you're working on a policy analysis that should be right. out right. fairly soon on this. But walk us through this history. I believe in the 1970s yeah. of when the government decided we have to do something. It, it was actually disgraceful because McGovern, who chaired this committee, actually, George McGovern, George McGovern, the famous George McGovern, actually stated that yes, he admitted when asked. We just don't know all the facts. We don't actually know what the best advice to give is. But because of this terrible epidemic of heart attacks, we feel we must give some advice. And so we're going to give what we think is the best advice, even though we know we don't have all the facts in. That is actually a terrible way to proceed because what he was doing is he was putting the weight of the federal government behind one half of an argument because the nutrition community was actually pretty divided between those who thought it was carbohydrates and those who thought it was fats that were keep killing people and causing heart attacks. And in the not knowing which side to back, they decided to back one side rather than the other. And actually, they backed the wrong side and therefore did more harm than good. All right. You say the wrong side. But uh, is there such a thing when it comes to nutrition as settled science, things that we well, we know this one thing about like you have to eat food, for example. We know that that is a really good thing to do. But beyond that, is are there things that we know that we know are going to be true in a hundred years about about consuming food? No, I mean obviously you've got to have vitamins, uh, and obviously there are things called essential fats you must consume, and obviously there are minerals you must consume, but. The science of nutrition and longevity is incredibly complicated. And the truth is we don't know. And that's another reason why governments shouldn't intervene because nobody knows. And if the government does intervene and then give recommendations, that's going to give people the impression that the government actually knows what it's talking about. It'd be much healthier for the government to say it's not our responsibility to interfere in an area where there is no settled science. Therefore, we have to leave it to the scientists to thrash it out if necessary in public. And we can only be uh, uh, innocent guide, guide on, on the sidelines. Okay. So 
What was that initial advice? The initial advice was, as the pyramid indicates, eat less fat and eat more carbohydrate. And that was based on a completely inadequate understanding of what fat and carbohydrate did to blood cholesterol levels. It was absolutely true, there's no question, that if you ate animal fats, your blood cholesterol levels went up. Uh, but when, and this is really a disgraceful story, by 1977, when the advice was given uh, to eat less fat because of these experiments that showed that animal fats raised blood cholesterol levels, there had actually been no fewer than six carefully controlled trials where people had been put on low-fat diets and their blood cholesterol levels had in fact fallen, as predicted, but their life expectancy did not increase, i.e. the model was inadequate because we now know there are at least three different types of cholesterol. There's the really good cholesterol, which we call high-density lipoproteins. There's the neutral cholesterol, the large LDLs, so-called, and the dangerous cholesterols, which are the small oxidized LDLs. And we now know it's the carbohydrates that raise the dangerous ones. And so the government, even though they actually had no fewer than seven trials, six trials showing that low-fat diets did not increase life expectancy, still recommended that people did that. All right. Uh, we have a question here. This is from Matthew Feeney, one of our colleagues. And he asks, uh, why after decades and decades of research do scientists still not have a comprehensive answer to the question, what should I eat? And part of that, presumably, is that, uh, as you and I were discussing before uh, we started this program, is that it takes a long time to find out what the effects of eating some foods are. Look, it's really complicated. No one should pretend that food research is easy. Um, it takes years for experiments to pan out to see if you change one thing, does that alter life expectancy? Don't forget, you can't change things in isolation. If you ask people to eat less of something, they're going to eat more of something else, and so you don't actually know which is cause and which is effect. Um, and, and the other very great complication that we now understand about food research is that, well, the whole of research, scientific research in the world today is going through a crisis. It's called the crisis of reproducibility. We now increasingly understand how scientists in the face of a mass of data engaged in what's called p-hacking, they produce a mass of data and, and, they, and almost without knowing they are biased in favor of certain results rather than others. They pick the data that suits and they publish that. And food research is particularly prone to that because you can't do control experiments. You can't have a placebo for lunch or placebo for breakfast because you can't do that experiment. And so food research is doubly complicated because the very best experiments are denied you, the ones with the placebos. And you actually rely in the, in the end on the lack of bias of scientists. And that's asking probably more uh, from humans than, than is fair. Is that is the bias, the fact that that bias is tolerated, is it partially a product of the fact that it is very hard to do or almost impossible to do these uh, double-blind experiments? It, it's not tolerated. It's positively encouraged. You try to produce a paper, as we, we could see in the 70s and 80s and 90s, you tried to produce a paper in the 70s, 80s or 90s, which said, actually, uh, fat is good for you and carbohydrate is bad for you. You couldn't get that paper published. You wrote a grant application. You couldn't get that funded. The world, the scientific world, had absolutely fixed on a particular model, and they crowded out uh, heretics. So it's not just a matter of uh, being permitted, it's actually being discouraged. All right. So you, uh, when the government began issuing its advice in the late 1970s, and we have a, a chart here detailing of the percentage of obesity, uh, the consumption of carbohydrates, uh, consumption of uh, uh, energy calories here, 
explain what, to us what we're seeing here. Well, it's very simple. If you look along the bottom, that's, those are the years. Let me put my glasses on. <laughs> so you have 1960 on the left and 2000 on the right. And in the 70s, you suddenly see this um, emergence, this theory that we should now be eating more carbohydrates. Uh, and as you can see, the blue line, the carbohydrates go up and less fats. And so the fat, which is the black line, goes down. And what happens to obesity, which is the red line, and what happens to total energy intake, which is the uh, green line, they both go up. I.e., as people were told and obeyed orders, people did as they were told. They started eating less fat and more carbohydrate. They got fatter in themselves, partly because they actually ate more food because carbohydrates make you more hungry uh, and partly because carbohydrates in fact, directly make you fat with the effects of a hormone called insulin, i.e. it was all extremely bad for you. Okay. We have a question here from uh, Mark McCoskey. Mark asks, uh, is ketogenic and intermittent fasting the way to go? Now, I know that a lot of my friends do paleo. A lot of my friends do keto. A lot of my friends, they don't eat, they just don't eat grains of any kind. So Mark is asking here about keto and intermittent fasting. Well, the answer fundamentally is yes. Um, these are essentially the right way to go, but it's very important not to go to too many extremes either. Part of the problem and part of the danger is that people lurch from one extreme to another. A balanced diet, certainly, if you can avoid three meals a day, I mean, breakfast really is a dangerous meal because if you can try to focus your eating to just an eight-hour window every day uh, and therefore cut breakfast out, we, we, there's very good evidence that that's more healthy. But the other thing is that breakfast itself is dangerous because it makes you more hungry and you tend to eat breakfast at a time when the body is ill-prepared. So to answer your question, a keto diet implies, of course, a very low-carbohydrate diet, which is very good for you. Low-carbohydrate is good. And intermittent fasting implies these time windows, and they are also good for you. So to answer your question, the answer basically is yes, but nothing should ever be done in too extreme a fashion. All right. So uh, what are the big decisions that people make? You argue people should not eat breakfast at all. Uh, now, but let me qualify that. Uh, you know, when I, you and I have talked about this in the past, you've said, well, some eggs are fine. Well, let me just first start, and this is really disgraceful. There has been a proper campaign, a propaganda campaign for over a century to tell us that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. There's a propaganda campaign to say that we should eat breakfast like kings, lunch like princes, and eat supper like paupers. This is a propaganda campaign, and you can be damn sure who is funding it. You look at the papers that say that breakfast is good for you, and almost without exception, they're funded by one of the cereal companies or by a bacon company. That tells you at once that this is actually very, very bad science. Um, the reality is that if you must eat breakfast, and some people just are hungry in the morning, then you should avoid the carbohydrates. You certainly shouldn't be eating cereals or oatmeals. But if you're going to eat an egg or low-sugar fruit, low-sugar fruit like strawberries or blackberries or yogurts or sour cream, that's going to be good for you. But what I'm really saying is not don't eat breakfast. Some people are hungry in the morning. But don't eat breakfast because you feel you should because somebody in the background is manipulating that by propaganda that's not based on science. All right. We have a question here from Facebook Live from uh, Michael Smith. Uh, thank you, Michael. It's more of a comment, really. Uh, confusion on nutrition in the setting of digestive tract paralysis, gastroparesis, and chronic intestinal pseudo-obstruction. Nerve and muscle damage to the digestive tract causes difficulty in making the right choices over time. Uh, severe changes in what to eat uh, have 
caused confusion. 20 years ago, Gatorade to maintain electrolyte levels was great. Now horrible. Eggs were horrible. Now possibly great. Uh, makes gut rehab after total parental nutrition difficult. Uh, and this is a particular interest to me. We're And he adds, we're still trying to understand what role the gut's microbiome plays. It's like there's a, there's a whole lot of new science This is uh, a really important point that's been raised by this point. You're absolutely right. There's an increasing understanding that the bacteria in your gut are very important and really do affect your health. It's certainly true that eggs 20 years ago were terrible. Now we know, we actually know that eggs are in fact good for you. To be fair to the more recent science, science has had to be done in the face of all the propaganda, has had to be done to really high standards. So we now know that eggs are good for you. And actually, I would say that the American Heart Association and uh, one of the other big charities associated with the American Heart Association did put out very good advice about two years ago on what diet should look like. And we basically now know, and this actually is pretty solid information now, that the healthiest diet you can go for is a Mediterranean diet. A Mediterranean diet, which by definition is comes out of the Mediterranean, the European Mediterranean, is a diet where people tend not to eat breakfast. You go to Italy, people don't eat breakfast. A uh, diet full of olive oils and vegetables, very low in, in dairy products and very low in meat. A, a Mediterranean diet is good for you. The issues that you've talked about specifically uh, coming down to the gut uh, biotome, you're absolutely right. But we are beginning to understand how indeed even that should be regulated. Uh, Brett Wagner asks a question on Facebook Live. Brett, thank you for the question. Isn't this market-driven to some extent? Carbs are cheaper than animal proteins and, and fats. If my alternative to processed carbohydrates is so much more expensive, aren't I likely to choose the alternative good? Uh, many don't even consider nutrition. They consider cost and taste. Well, that, of course, was said by the great English socialist writer George Orwell in the 20s and 30s. And he pointed out that the poor people in England in the 20s and 30s were eating a very unhealthy diet, basically buns covered in icing sugar uh, as, as comfort foods. And this, of course, was extremely bad for them. But actually, if you look at food today, the share of income we spend on food is really low. All foods, even meats, even proteins, even butters, even fruits and vegetables, they're all st astonishingly cheap. I mean, there was a time 100 years ago when almost all household income went either on housing or food. Now it's, what, less than 10%. So food is actually very, very cheap indeed. To go for the really cheap option rather than the reasonably cheap option is just to damage yourself gratuitously. So I would actually disagree with you very, very slightly. I'd say that all food is cheap. Some food, of course, is more comforting than others. Of course, you're right. But it doesn't co cost that much money, actually, to eat a reasonably healthy diet anymore. All right. Let's uh, go back to some of the data here. You provided me with some uh, information. This is on death rates from atherosclerotic heart disease and stroke. What, are we, what should we take away from this? Well, this is the data. This is the 20th century. So you're looking about along the bottom line at the 20th century. And as you can see, the red peak looking a bit like Mount Everest, that represents the rise and now fall a rate of heart attack. And this is really interesting. The, the, the blue line is the fall in rate of strokes. Why is it that the rate of heart attacks has fallen so dramatically? It's certainly not because of food advice from the government. It's partly because we are now uh, smoking so much less. A curve for smoking looks not that different, really, in terms of population uh, to the red uh, Mount Everest type 
uh, line. But there are also other reasons as well, which are accounted for by the fall and the stroke. It so turns out, and this is really good news, that the better fed we are, particularly as babies and as fetuses in our mother's womb, and the better fed our mothers are, it, tra- it transpires that the healthier we become. And so, although, of course, you want to avoid obesity or even being overweight, Actually, the nice story is that even overweight now is much less dangerous than it used to be. Obesity, of course, is a bad thing, but overweight no longer such a terrible thing. And if you're very well fed as a child, as a fetus, so as an adult, you will find that you get less and less heart attacks and strokes. This is an extraordinarily uh, hopeful graph and actually feeds into a very interesting fact that since 1830, and this is an amazing fact, since 1830, for every year you live your life expectancy has increased by three months, i.e. my life expectancy today is three months longer than it was this time last year. And that's been true of everyone in the West since 1830 and continues to be true. Life expectancies continue to rise at an extraordinary rate and have done so nearly for 200 years. And so we are living, and it's important not to despair, we're living in an increasingly healthy world as nutrition, amongst other reasons, has got so much better. All right. If we could, uh, David, if you wouldn't mind going back to that chart for just a second. There's something notable, I think, here in the death rates from uh, heart disease and stroke, and that is just before the peak of heart attacks, uh, if I recall correctly, the Surgeon General issued the first report on smoking. So you could conclude that government advice did play a role in this. Oh, yes, I suppose that would be a fair point to say that uh, the government advice not to smoke, Pedro, but I think you can be jolly sure that without government advice not to smoke, once initial studies had come out as it happens, Richard Doll's studies in England, I'm not making a nationalist point, once those studies came out, once it became so obvious that smoking was incredibly dangerous, you certainly didn't have to... you certainly didn't have to persuade the medical community. Um, what happened in England, because they, they were the pioneers in this, is that once Richard Doll published the papers showing what smoking did to you, doctors as an entire profession in England basically just stopped smoking. I mean, it was an extraordinary vault fuss, and they started telling their patients thereupon. So actually, the government was only a secondary player here. There was no way this data on smoking was ever not going to be really promulgated. Uh, there is a report I just saw, or a, a news story I saw on uh, CNN recently, and it was... Uh, FDA moves to revoke soy health claim, and they uh, make a note here. Uh, one of the uh, pe- one of the physicians, a cardiologist that they talked to, she says there was never any there were never any clinical trials ever that showed eating more soy improves heart health. So, uh, with respect to health claims that the government allows or the government uh, makes itself, uh, how does that happen? Well, the soy claim probably came about, um, you've only just shown me this, so I haven't had time to do the particular research, but almost certainly came about because people who replaced animal meat with soy almost certainly got a lower level of cholesterol in the blood. But that does not mean they lived any longer. This is really important to understand there are good cholesterols as well as bad cholesterols. It's a very complicated story. And I think what's happened, in fact, I'm sure that what's happened, although I can't prove it because... As I said, I don't actually have the material in front of me. But almost certainly what happened, studies came out showing that people who ate soy instead of meat had a lowering of cholesterol, and so people recommended soy. But then when they went on to do the studies to be the only important study that actually matters, does soy actually make you live longer or healthier? The answer is no. Uh, And therefore, the claim has been withdrawn by the government. In a sense, that's just how nutrition science works, and we have to live with that. 
Uh, Alex Wellman asks, although he didn't tag didn't tag us here, uh, he says it pains me to say this, but I do sort of miss the standardized nutrition label we have in the U.S. I always have to squint and search to find the sugar content in where he is in Estonia, even if the food almost always has less. Well, all I can tell you is if you think that the U.S. food labels are helpful, you should look. And again, I'm not trying to make a cheap national point here. You should look at the British labels, which is much, much more helpful. I actually find American nutrition labels relatively unhelpful because they tend to be defined in terms of portion size or other non-standardized metrics. In England and other parts of the European Union, it's simply per 100 grams. And it's very easy to compare different food types under those circumstances. And you definitely get more material. So yes, I don't know what goes on in Estonia. And uh, I'm sure the American system is better. But you could, be, you could get even better than the American system if you really wanted to hit food hard. Talk to me about how uh, what the, the politics uh, and some of the public choice uh, questions that are raised here about nutrition and government nutrition advice. I assume that there's a lot of politicking and uh, a lot of infighting behind the scenes with the FDA and food producers and USDA about what goes on to those labels and about what research is going to be accepted and what research is not going to be accepted when it comes to allowing or disallowing health claims about some foods. You're so right. It's a complete nightmare, actually. There's a very good professor called Marion Nestle in New York who's published a series of books on the subject. And she has shown, for example, how... Well, let me give you a specific example. The food producers were so worried after 1977 when it was clear that the government was going to start, the federal government was going to start recommending people to eat less, that they demanded and got a promise that all dietary advice in America since 1977 has been given jointly by two agencies, one of which is the USDA, the other one is human health. This means that all government food advice in this country is, goes through the filter of an agency, the USDA, that exists to protect farmers and producers. Marion Nestle tells stories, for example, of how it is impossible to get that agency ever to agree to the statement, eat less meat or eat less food, because they are so much in hock to the, the producing community. On top of that, there's very powerful lobbying. I mean, these producer groups have huge power and huge money. Um, they're able, for example, to get tariffs and subsidies to their own people, costing the federal government, the taxpayer, huge sums of money. And this is just part of their campaign to protect the health of farmers uh, to some extent uh, to, uh, at the cost of the health of other people. So yes, these are hugely disputed claims. It is very difficult out of them to get a true story of what is really going on. This is really a matter of balancing lobbying groups. Uh, there was a story just uh, this week or, or, or early last week. This is from the New York Times. Are Honey Nut Cheerios healthy? We look inside the box and they go into some details. One uh, fact that was uh, among popular breakfast cereals among children perhaps uh, Honey Nut Cheerios sugar content was second only to Fruity Pebbles. And uh, they announced recently, uh, or I should say back in 2009, this is from the story, the company made news by announcing an initiative that had already been underway to drop the sugar figure from 11 grams of sugar per serving into single digits in such cereals marketed to children. In the last decade or so, Honey Nut Cheerios has fallen to 9 grams of sugar per serving uh, from 11, or so it seems uh, they actually – the 
serving size was reduced from a cup to three quarters of a cup. Look, I'm not going to talk about this particular brand because for start, they might sue me. But I'm going to talk generally about breakfast cereals. They should be banned. There is no good in a breakfast cereal. At best, it's not going to be killing you. But even if it doesn't come pre-sugared, you're going to add sugar if you're a child. What you should be giving your children for breakfast is, I mean, give them an apple. Um, give them a boiled egg. Uh, it takes a little bit more work to do. But don't give them these completely processed foods that are simply vehicles for carbohydrates and particularly sugar. If I was king for a day, I'm an Englishman, you see, so I have to talk about kings. If I was king for a day, I would abolish all breakfast cereals. They really are not good for you. And I'd go further. Breakfast cereals cannot be good for you. Uh, that's not not very libertarian, Terence. You're quite right. I withdraw the comment at once. I am a libertarian and people should be free to eat what they want. But I would urge them to think twice before picking. You're quite right. I, I don't actually believe in banning things. I'd only be king for a day. <laughs> okay. So uh, with respect to uh, breakfast, the big problem uh, and one of the key drivers of your advice is that what American – this is from other news sources saying what Americans eat for breakfast – is dessert. It's a disgrace. And, but and more than that, <laughs> Americans, uh, you argue, feel that it is the right thing to do to eat breakfast. So this is less of a policy uh, point here, but discuss why uh, a carb-heavy breakfast is something that uh, is counterproductive to people who are trying to trying to manage their weight. It's a genuine tragedy. I was in staying in a hotel just the other day what, in America watching breakfast and people were, were there making their waffles and they were getting their cereals and they were putting on the sugar and they were eating the toast. It was a carbohydrate fest with the honey and I mean it was a, a sugar fest. If you eat carbohydrate in the morning, sugar levels go up, sugar levels go down. And when the sugar levels go down, that tells the body you're hungry. And so the irony is that by eating breakfast, you'll end up eating more during the course of the day. The myth is that by eating breakfast, you'll be full and therefore you'll eat less. Every single study shows that simply is not true. Eating breakfast makes you more hungry. On top of that, Mornings are the most dangerous time of day to eat because the hormones that wake you up in the morning, things called cortisol, actually make you resist sugar and resist insulin also. So these are the things that are most likely to precipitate insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. So breakfast makes you fat and it also gives you diabetes, which are the two epidemics we're suffering from. And what is really criminal about it is that 99% of people believe that they're owing it to themselves to eat breakfast. They think they're doing themselves good. They're doing themselves wholly bad. And the analogy I would use is if you go back to the 30s and 40s, you could see advertisements for cigarettes, which suggested that cigarettes were positively good for your health, cleared the chest or something like that. Well, we're in that world now with breakfast. We are being told it's positively good for you. It is as bad for you as a cigarette. So you and I have talked about uh, science and science as uh, not just a process of uh, discovering or throwing out bad uh, – discovering new good ideas or throwing out bad old ideas, but it's also a process of competition. And that that science should be competitive. That you should be trying to eat uh, your opponent's lunch in a sense. That is, you're trying to find out what's wrong with their theory. So, do we have that in the United States with respect to nutrition? 
Uh, and more broadly, do we have that in, in any no. field of scientific inquiry? No. I mean, what you've d described is what Popper, the, the great philosopher of science, described. He said, science, by definition, a statement is scientific only if it's falsifiable. That's to say, if you can't do an, if you can't design an experiment to prove something wrong, then it's not science. And he pointed out that people like Marx and Sigmund Freud when, thought they were scientists, but they were not. However, people have then made the mistake of supposing that scientists actually enjoy falsification. They enjoy their own work being falsified, and they enjoy falsifying the work of other people. Oh, no. Scientists are verifiers, and they have careers to protect. If you are a scientist and you want to become an assistant professor, an associate professor, a full professor, it's so much easier to get there if you say all the things that your friends want you to say because they're the ones who referee your grants and promote you. And so what you actually end up is huge group think in science because essentially it's a form of public choice theory. Scientists want to promote their own careers reasonably enough. They will very rarely tell lies. It's very unusual for a scientist to tell an untruth. It's very usual, however, for a scientist to select the data that suits the conclusion they're trying to find. It, and is, uh, and I'll, I go back to this question again, is part of that driven by the fact that it's just more difficult to engage in this falsification that you talk about in the field of nutrition? Well, nutrition is a particularly complicated field of science. Nutrition is genuinely difficult. Let's not pretend otherwise. And, um, and it's so easy to get the data you want. I mean, for example, we have a convention in science called P, where if you do an experiment and the chances of it coming by chance are only 5%, then you can call that statistically significant. So if I go to you and give you something for breakfast and measure 20 outcomes, you know, how, how heavy you feel, what your sugar levels are, whatever, I will find by definition that one of those 20 outcomes by definition will be statistically significant. If I like it, I'll publish it. If I don't like it, I won't. So it's so easy to produce misleading data in, in nutrition research. So uh, if, we're, if we see a health claim published in the press and it says X is shown to improve Y, like wine perhaps is maybe good for your heart or as we heard with uh, soy that, that it was good for your heart and now they've withdrawn that health claim. What should we be thinking when we see that like a, a particularized health claim about a specific product helping a specific uh, condition or risk factor? When I read a paper like that or in the newspapers, I don't like to sound like Donald Trump. But what I say to myself is, why is this lying bastard lying to me? Or how is this lying bastard lying to me? No one should believe that a scientific paper is in any way definitive. It's as if you're listening to the arguments of the counsel for the prosecution or the counsel for defense. But not both. <laughs> That's the job of the judge. And the trouble is we need people to be judges. And again, I hate to sound like Donald Trump, but we do actually need from the media more discriminating uh, reporting of these things. We do actually need someone to say before this stuff appears on the front page of the newspapers, actually, this was only an association. It wasn't a double-blinded trial. Actually, the chances of this being true are pretty slim. But unfortunately, it's in the interest of the newspapers who are trying to sell newspapers to make the claims as interesting as possible so people buy the paper, people review the article. And so there's a, uh, a not a conspiracy because we don't live in a world of conspiracies, but there's a mutuality of interest by which um, as um, 
one of your secretaries of the Treasury once said, it's in no one's interest to stop the party and to take the punch bowl away. And I'm afraid that if you want better food advice, somehow you're going to have to pay for it. You're going to have to pay for people to be much more critical to interpret these papers for the public good. So like a Consumer Reports or a Life Extension magazine or something like that that would be uh, not beholden to any particular interest but very interested in constantly grinding through all that research. Yes, absolutely. So there is, for example, something called the Cochrane. Um, it, it, Cochrane is a body, um, it's a collective body in the world of science that looks very carefully at these claims and every now and then across the field of science, medical science, puts out these really good reports. We need something much more like Cochrane to be much closer to the consumers in America today. Does uh, the fact that the government is engaged in this process of providing that advice, does it crowd out more opportunities for that kind of uh, information to be more readily available? Or do consumers, broadly speaking, just not care that much about that kind of information? Well, that is such a good question. I'm, I think I'm afraid that government advice has been really damaging. It has crowded out. One thing it's crowded out is a debate. The moment the government lays down a particular story, there's a strong temptation for the scientific community to crowd out behind it because that's where the government grants are going to be. That's where the money is going to be. That's where the promotions are going to be. And so when government steps in, it, it, it hugely reduces the debate that's taking place. And that itself is very damaging. The other thing is that people believe government. There's somehow this myth that somehow the government, you know, like God sitting on the cloud, is only interested in neutrality and truth. It's not true. George McGovern I mean, he wasn't a bad man in any ways, but he had his own very strong interests to pursue in 1977. His career was coming to an end. Um, he wanted to jump onto a bandwagon by which he might be re-elected as a senator, which he failed, by the way. He was looking for good things to do. Uh, and therefore, he, 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 he short-circuited good science for bad science because it was in his interest as a careerist, or he thought it was. So you can't rely on government. And we'd be better off not having government so people didn't think there was a false authority so then people could look at each individual authority in a more objective way. All right. So um, how do we get there uh, with respect to getting the government out of the – do we just remove all manda mandatory labeling or – No, labeling what? is good. Facts are so good. So la labeling you say is good. But doesn't that itself privilege some information – uh, above other information, like when I, I – if you were go, to go to a restaurant and see the mandated calorie counts on something, well, maybe I don't care about the calorie count. Maybe I care about fat content. Maybe I care about salt. Maybe I care about uh, carbohydrates. Well, you're absolutely right and it causes me terrible pain as I walk down the supermarket shelves here in America to see how many low-fat products are being marketed, low-fat yogurt or no-fat yogurt. And, uh, with the implication, of course, being that that's good for you. It's not good for you at all. Uh, full fat yogurt is, is full fat yogurt's good for you. That's hard to find. Well, you can find it, but <laughs> it, but it is diff it's it's the vaster. If you look at shelf space devoted to no fat, low fat yogurt, and full fat yogurt, it's a huge disparity. Huge disparity, and it's completely it's insane actually. And ever since, uh, well, I won't go into that, but even to the seventies, we knew it was insane. So. Uh, you're absolutely right. Even labeling has implicit messages. Having said that, however, um, if um, fa facts alone are very rarely dangerous. And so I certainly would encourage 
labelling, perhaps more comprehensive and more scrupulous than easy to read. But I would certainly say that the government should absolutely stop giving health advice. It is not a government uh, strength to do this sort of thing. They're only relying on one group of scientists or another. I would leave it for the scientists to battle it out and let the general public in one way or another try to determine from what the scientists are saying what is trying to go on. But the government is just another player which abuses its authority to give false certainty when we know from the whole business of margarine. Look, the government's been telling us for decades to eat margarine full of trans fats. We now know these are really bad for you. Like the British government was telling us for years that we had to give up gas, petrol, and drive diesel cars. We now know that diesel is really bad for you. Government record here is really bad. The government should butt out, concentrate on what it's good at doing, which isn't very many things, of course, and let the scientific community and the nutrition community sort out for itself what's going on with food. So where does the – you say that the, the bulk of uh, thinking, people who want to – scientists who want to advance their careers are strongly encouraged not to get too far out of line when it comes to consensus, which of science, of course, has nothing to do with consensus, ah. right? But uh, where does the, that money for research come from uh, when it comes to nutrition? That is a really good question and I'm going to answer it because I'm really glad you asked that question. Because what happens at the moment is almost all the money comes either from the food companies and that's incredibly biased. It's not that the food companies fund research that tells lies. It's just that the food companies fund research that only tells a certain story. And if they get the wrong story, they just don't publish it. So you never know. Or from the government. But the trouble is the government has, as we know since 1977, the government had been absolutely committed to its pyramid, which we now know is almost 100% wrong. So what we need is the government to butt out and to get the independent charities, uh, the Gates Foundation, uh, and other charities would move in if the government left a vacuum there. One of the reasons that Gates goes off and does orphan diseases in the third world, important though that is, is because so much of the science that's already being important within the country is already being done by government. So people like Gates, Carnegie, and all the Rockefeller, all the other foundations think, well, the government's doing it. If the government butted out, what we'd then get is actually would be competing funding bodies, and different funding bodies might actually have different nutritional theories as well. So we'd end up with a much more debate, with much more pluralistic debate on what's going on because Gates would fund sugar and um, Rockefeller would fund fat. And you, know, you can see how that would work. And you'd end up with a much healthier debate. Government imposes a monolith. And because the government is so influenced by, I'm afraid, the, the producers, the agriculture department, the monolith is so often aligned to the interests of the producers rather than the interests of the consumers. How much uh, do subsidy, federal subsidies for certain foods and not others, I know uh, grain products and dairy products to, to some extent, uh, receive a disproportionate share of food subsidies in the United States. Does that contribute at all to... Uh, the consumption of this versus that? Well, to take the question you asked 20 minutes ago, if that's going to control relative prices, then obviously it's going to have that impact. We certainly know that the whole uh, high fructose corn syrup thing, uh, I'm not an expert on this, but I understand, was absolutely determined by government tariffs and, uh, and subsidies to distort a market and end up with something that's actually more dangerous for you than just getting sugar in, in granules would be. So yes, um, the answer to your question is obviously government can influence the way people eat only by the relative prices in the supermarket shelves. All right. Uh, if you have a question for Terence Keeley, you can tweet it out at with using the hashtag CatoConnect and uh, 
be sure to tag me at C.O. Brown, and we'll try to get to that. We're over time already, but we'll take a happily take a few more of your questions. So uh, one of our staffers here asked a question. Uh, Tess, wonderful Tess. You know Tess. I know Tess. Uh, she said, uh, what is your favorite carb? <laughs> if you, you enjoy – I mean – we enjoy carbohydrates. That's part of the effect of yeah. eating carbohydrates is that you feel that satiety that yes. doesn't always come from eating uh, other healthier foods. What's your favorite carb? Well, we know that the best carbs are those that come in the form of whole fruits. So if you eat your carb in the form of apples or, or, or uh, strawberries or fruit, it seems that the, the roughage in the fruit – uh, has a very healthy effect of delaying the release of the sugar into the bloodstream. So if you're going to eat carbs, eat them in the most natural form you can, i.e. in the form of apples. Apples. Apples, fruit. But obviously you Now want that's to... a recommendation. That is not answer the question oh, of what my your favorite, favorite is. Uh, I'm quite fond of apples, actually. <laughs> I'm going to stick to apples. <laughs> okay, you're going to stick to apples. All right. Uh, I think we're going to close it out there. Terrence, thank you for talking with us about uh, food science and nutrition science uh, and uh, the government. Uh, please join us again next time for uh, Cato Connects. You can subscribe to our various uh, newsletters to find out when the next one's going to be. Like us on Facebook. Uh, and, of course, uh, follow us on the various social media. And we'll talk to you again next time.